0: We covered these verses last time. They were in the reading for the message that we did last week. But we didn't really go into detail and unpack all that's that's here with this woman. And this is a really special and unique encounter. And this is the last sermon in the series that I started called Close Encounters with Jesus. And it's about four people, one of them a group of people, his disciples, who had a life-changing encounter with Jesus all in the same day and this is one of the last things we're going to read that happened on this day no doubt Jesus was tired he was exhausted but Jesus always has time for desperate need doesn't he he always has time and I think we're going to discover some tremendously helpful truths in this passage and we can talk about a lot of things one of the lenses that I want to look through at this passage is the lens of shame so we're going to talk today about shame the title of the message is quiet desperation, quiet desperation, and I think that really encapsulates what a lot of people who live in shame feel. It's an agonizing experience, and to be honest with you, I haven't heard a lot of sermons about shame, maybe just passing, and it's not that people have done wrong by not preaching on it, but it's a theme we find so prevalent, honestly, in the world today, in the Bible, certainly, it's all over the place, and in the church, too, and and. Everybody else is talking about shame today, and I think the church should be the first voice to weigh in, not really the last. Don't you agree? So we have, a, we have three points this morning, and we're still, I'm still trying to do uh, PowerPoint and do it well. I hope it's not a distraction for you. You can put the points up on the slide now, just so you can visually track with us. Eventually, I'll get it to where you can see all the words that are up there and, and that they won't be too high up or, or too close to the left margin. Can you pull up the outline slide? Are we able to do it? It may not be working. Okay. Yeah, so here's the outline today. Point number one is that shame is everywhere. It's everywhere. You see it everywhere in redemptive history in the Bible, all the way from the garden uh, in Genesis to the new heavens and the new earth at being totally removed. Jesus bearing our shame for us. It's everywhere. The second point is this. What does shame do? Shame keeps us from God, and it keeps us from each other. It, it's a, it's a, a killer. It's a quiet killer, and it's a separator. And then the third thing we're going to see in this passage is what happens when Jesus meets shame. Something powerful, something wonderful, Jesus removes our shame. Really, he absorbs it, but absorb starts with A, not, not R, so I couldn't use that, right? Jesus removes our shame, he reunites us to God, and he restores us to each other. All those things we're going to see in this passage, I hope, as we, as we go through it, and you can, you can pull up this, the theme slide again. So shame, point number one, shame is everywhere. We're going to look at this woman and her story in a minute, but shame is everywhere. This is just one little snapshot of what shame looks like, how it behaves, and what it does to people, the effect that it has on people socially, culturally, spiritually, psychologically, religiously, all of those things that has a dramatic impact on people. And I don't want you to think that somehow I'm infringing this on this story or I'm reading this end of this story. I could have very easily gone to... Hundreds of different places in the Bible to talk about shame. I think this happens to be a very desperate case. Jesus always seems to be drawn to the most desperate cases in the New Testament, and I love that. Twelve years this woman had been defiled, polluted, and unclean. And would it have been considered an outcast, an annoyance? Merely seeing her or hearing her name, we're not even told what her name is, would have probably produced anxiety and maybe anger in people? Her again, she's here again, she's unclean. She's going to defile us. This is a really desperate case. For 12 years, she had suffered from this condition. But the whole world is talking about shame right now. It it is on the table more, perhaps, than it's ever been before, which is a good thing to talk about it. I don't know that everything that the world is saying is helpful. Some of it's probably damaging, but the world is definitely talking about it. Bullying is, is nearly a capital offense now when you see it, you hear about it. You hear what happens to people that are caught bullying, and that's a good thing. It should be forbidden. Um, People are more sensitive to shame now than they ever have been. Victims of sexual abuse now feel the power and the freedom to come forward and to tell their story and to get help. People who are suffering from depression are able to come out in the light now and talk about their condition and maybe get the help that they need. People a little bit younger than me, the millennial generation, they're talking about how we need to value authenticity and honesty and transparency, and so that makes people more and more open about the shames that they face and the hardship they face. There's some famous TED Talks right now. Jeff uh, mentioned TED Talk a few weeks ago. There's one on the power of vulnerability, and the second part to that was one on shame, and it's just blowing up YouTube. It's blowing up the internet. People are eating it up, so shame is definitely on the table right now. Ed Welch said this, by the way, if you want to dig deeper into this topic of shame and Christianity, shame and the gospel, I would recommend a book to you by Ed Welch. It's not a very intimidating or long, thick book. It's called Shame Interrupted, and it's really, really a good book. And it helped me just to form some of my thoughts on how we should think as Christians in the church about shame. He said this, Ed Welch said this, these days, shame is emerging from the shadows and beginning to have its own identity. For example, he goes on, if you talk about guilt, if you talk about guilt to people under 30, you often get blank stares. But if you talk about shame, feeling worthless, feeling like you're a failure, those people feel as if you have deciphered the code of their being. For them, shame is arguably the human problem. Did you hear that? Talk to anybody under 30 years of age and about guilt, and sometimes you'll get blank stares like, what are you talking about? I don't quite comprehend. But change the topic to something connected with guilt, but different. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they feel like you have just deciphered. You understand them. You're finally putting your finger on the problem with humanity. Because listen, shame targets everybody. Nobody's immune to it. It crosses all barriers, time, space, geography, race, Gender, doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated, poor or wealthy, elite, does not matter. What skin color you are, what your family background's like, shame attaches itself to human beings, and it strikes at the, at the core of who we are, and it's all over the place in the Bible. Just to look up the word shame, you'll find it 182 times in the Old Testament, mostly in the Psalms and in the prophets. And in the Psalms, you know what they're always praying? Lord, don't let me what? don't let me be ashamed. That was petrifying to people. In a shame and honor culture, which is the Bible is written in that context, both in the Old Testament and in the New, that was the worst possible thing that could happen to somebody, is that they could find themselves in a condition of shame. 182 times in the Old Testament, 50 times in the New Testament. And look, all you have to do is turn on your TV to realize how powerful of a thing shame is. Just about every advertisement that you see is somehow manipulating this dynamic of shame. All these diets. Why is that so popular today to talk about diet? Because we live in a culture that's obsessed with being thin and being beautiful and having your ideal body weight, right? And if you don't, shame on you. Thou shalt not be obese, right? So they offer all these breakthrough diets, most of them that probably destroy your body, the stuff you're you're eating, but nevertheless it's there or this uh, powerful new breakthrough in hair restoration. Yeah, I know, it hits close to home. But listen, listen, all you have to do is turn on your TV. Shame on you for not having a full head of hair. It's terrible, isn't it? I mean, it gets worse. I know we're all adults in here. I don't have cable. I have a TV, and I have Netflix. But every year, I try to watch the Super Bowl, and I'm blown away by just in one year uh, how commercials have just, just plumbed. Just plummeted. That there's nothing off the table. Are you married? How's your love life? I know we have little ears in here, but look, it's shame on you for not being like the the lover you're supposed to be. We can help you with this or that product. Shame. It's all over the place. Age-defying beauty cream. Thou shalt not have wrinkles. Shame on you if you actually look your age. I don't know when in the world that became a shameful thing, but it has in our culture. And you know what? A lot of people in the church had bought the line, bought the lie, hook, line, and sinker. And look, there's nothing wrong with looking beautiful, and hey, if you got age defined cream and you want to give me some, I'll put it on my face. You, get, you have some stuff that'll sprout some hair? Give it to me. I'll try it, man. I don't know about the diet thing. I'm not too good at those. But shame is everywhere. It's everywhere. And look, I want to make sure that we're all using the same dictionary this morning, okay? So let's talk about what shame is and what shame is not. Shame is not guilt. They're connected. They're always some kind of an overlap, especially if there's a certain sin that you commit that society says is a no-no. Shame is really associated with guilt then, but shame and guilt are two different things in this way. Guilt, guilt lives in a courtroom before a judge, and it says you have sinned, you are responsible legally, and the guilty person expects punishment and expects um, that they need forgiveness. So guilt really li- lives in a courtroom, Shame, on the other hand, lives in a community, okay? Shame lives in a community, and it's, it's, the verdict is rendered by the peers. Shame on you for not being this way, for not living this way, for not acting this way, or for being associated with things that are shameful and that are off limits. Shame lives in the community, and it says, you don't belong. You're unacceptable. You're not welcome here. You're unclean. Go away. Go away. Shame lives in the community. Guilt lives in the courtroom. Shame is not guilt. Shame focuses on self, okay? It focuses on self. Guilt focuses on behavior. Guilt says, I did something bad. I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something bad. I am something wrong. Guilt says, I made a mistake. And shame says, I am a mistake. Do you see the difference between those two things? Shame and guilt are closely connected, but they're not identical are two totally different things that listen scripture treats differently in some cases. In fact, Ed Welch in that book said that you're going to find shame in some form or another 10 times more in the Bible than you will guilt. That blew me away when I read that. Blew me away. Guilt says I'm sorry I made a mistake. Shame says I'm sorry I am a mistake. Shame is not embarrassment. Shame is not embarrassment and here's why. Whatever caused you to be embarrassed has probably been experienced by other people at some point in their life pass gas at the wrong time at the wrong place in front of the wrong people everyone laughs you're embarrassed but later on you're laughing about it with them right because everybody's done that i mean i haven't but most people have right (laughs) get caught picking your nose at a red light you're embarrassed but the but the embarrassment goes away break out in acne when you're a teenager get dumped by your boyfriend or your girlfriend look those are things you look back on later and you laugh, but shame—you never laugh. You never laugh about shame. It's—it's it's so agonizing, and it's so different. It's unending. Shame can become your identity. I think the classic example would be Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, *The Scarlet Letter*. Do you remember that? In the opening scene, Hester Prynne—she's had an affair with somebody that she won't name. Turns out that it's the town pastor. It always is, right? In the books, at least. Hopefully, not in real life. But she will not name uh, the guilty party, her partner in crime. So they put her on a scaffold, and the whole town shames her, and they make her wear this scarlet letter A for adulteress. She has to wear it throughout the entire book, I think a seven year period. Well, this adulterous affair with a town pastor yielded a child named Pearl. And Pearl became so accustomed to seeing her mother wearing that scarlet letter A that when her mom would take it off at home, Pearl, I don't know if you've read the novel, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, his insight into the world of shame. Whenever Pearl would see her mother without that A, she wouldn't acknowledge her. She wouldn't look at her. She wouldn't go to her. Why? Because that had become so much of her identity. We start to believe the lies that shame tells us. It becomes a part of our DNA. It's who we are. And look, it's debilitating because we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. And that means that the two greatest things... I believe that we need and you see this right from the outset in the Garden of Eden is that we want to be fully known right and we want to be fully loved who doesn't want that who doesn't want to be fully known and fully loved right that strikes at the heart of what we are as image bearers and shame says when I fully know you I'm not gonna love you right because the goods are out on you that's what shame says and shame is, is is found everywhere and it becomes an identity It's like when I was growing up, and look, if if some of the things I say offend you, I'm basing some of this on my own experience to to help illustrate. I just remember the little town I grew up in, the elementary school, there were these shame identities. There was the dumb kid, right? There was the slow kid. There was the fat kid. There was the kid who smelled funny. There was the poor kid. There was the ugly kid. Those were identities. Listen, children can be really cruel. And you know what? You start to believe those things over time. That becomes who you are. People call you that. That's your identity, and you believe it. You believe it, and you carry that. So that's what shame is. One man defines shame this way. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something that was done to you, or something you're associated with. Let me say that again. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something that was done to you, or something that you're associated with it's feeling unpresentable before god and before others and as you'll see in the story it's absolutely agonizing that's why it's called the quiet killer the quiet killer this woman is desperate and if we were honest we would confess that a lot of us feel desperate too, or we have in the past shame makes you feel desperate there's a there's a famous quote by a poet um henry david thoreau He said this you probably heard it in one form or another he said most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them you know i don't think he was a christian i don't know but that's true isn't it a lot of people live lives of quiet desperation on the outside everything looks fine and in this culture before this woman became known for her uncleanliness her defilement, everything on the outside probably looked fine, but can you imagine what it was like living a life of perpetual uncleanness? One person described the agony of shame like this, you are shunned, faces are turned away from you, they ignore you as if you don't exist, and then this, you are naked, faces are turned towards you, they stare at you as if you were hideous, do you see that whole image bearing thing comes into play? Part of shame is that faces are turned away from you, they reject you, and the other part is that faces are turned towards you and they stare at you. That's true, it it, it strikes against our, our core as image bearers. Shame connects with three human experiences. You feel like an outcast, you don't belong, you feel naked, exposed and vulnerable, and you feel unclean, something is wrong with you, you're dirty. Do you know what one of the greatest phobias is in the world today? in the list of fears, you know what strikes fear and terror into the heart of people more than anything else? Can you guess? It's what I'm doing right now, speaking in public. That's at the top of the list of phobias. There are people who would rather die than get up and speak in public. And I want to ask you a question, okay? I want to know why. I'm a preacher. I want to get under the question, why is that? Why would most of you probably be petrified to be up here right now and speak? Well, I'm nervous. I get it. Why? Well, I may say something that say something that what? That embarrasses you, right? That you're ashamed of, or you may stutter, or you may collapse or faint or fall over. And I understand that. I feel that every single week. One, one person called preaching death by dying naked in front of people every single week. And that's true in some cases. Somebody asked me if I was nervous earlier, and I said, I'm nervous every single time I preach. That's the greatest fear that people have is being up, being exposed, being public. And you know the greatest nightmare people have? You know what it is? It's being in public, in front of a bunch of people, what? Naked. (laughs) That's it. I know it's funny, but there's a reason we dream that over and over. And that's not a dream, it's a nightmare. Why? Shame. Shame. People will know, they'll find out, right? That's it. It's the number one phobia. So what causes shame? Let's, Let's get underneath this a little bit. Really want to make this a practical sermon. Any kind of abuse brings shame, any kind of abuse, whether it's sexual, whether it's spiritual, whether it's verbal, emotional, physical, rape, molestation, any of that brings shame. Any kind of disability can bring shame, it can bring shame. Mental disability, physical, handicapped, people making fun, bullying, Any kind of rejection or neglect or demeaning words can bring shame, especially when it's from someone that's supposed to love you, like a parent or a spouse or a friend or a sibling. If you are noticeably different physically, intellectually, financially, you know shame. And who doesn't? Who isn't different at some level on some of those issues? People with misunderstood disabilities, if you were in the intermediate class and not The advanced class in school, there's a dynamic of shame there. People who have had to be psychiatrically treated, that brings shame. If you carry extra body weight, shame. If you fall below the community standards of beauty, that brings shame. Filing bankruptcy, losing a job, being unemployed, getting a divorce, shame, shame. Having to rely on others for generosity and help brings shame. If something happens shamefully in your family, right? Some kind of scandal, drug abuse, alcoholism, suicide, public immorality, somebody went to jail, somebody went to prison, somebody's in court, any of those things can bring shame. And remember that shame can rub off on other people. Even if it's not directly connected to you, but somebody close to you can rub off on you. I hope we're scratching the surface here. I hope you're listening. I hope you're understanding this. Everyone in this room has been impacted and infected by shame at some point, at some level in your life. Anything scandalous. I remember when I was a young teenager, a guy from our church ran over a child getting gas. Late one night on a Friday night, he ran over that child. The child went to the hospital in Memphis and suffered multiple, multiple surgeries and eventually died. I remember still as a kid... I wouldn't have explained it like I am now. I remember the shame that carried that guy around for the rest of his life until eventually I believe he left that church and left that town. He just couldn't he couldn't handle it anymore. It was just shame, shame and guilt. Somebody that's pregnant out of wedlock, shame? Can be shameful. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just saying so often it is. So, uh, I really want to drive this home and get in your kitchen, so I want to ask you a question. If you really want to find and detect the shame in your life, let's pull that slide up. Here is where the rubber meets the road, folks, okay? I want to ask you a question. I want you to think with me. I love you and I care about you. I'm your pastor, and if we're going to apply the gospel, we've got to know what to apply it to, okay? We've got to find the wound so that we don't rub salt in it so that we apply the gospel, apply the bomb. So, I want to ask you a question. What are you hiding? <laughs> And I know it's going to get really quiet and really awkward in here. What are you hiding? What do you want to keep hidden from other people? What question do you not want to answer on your resume? What do you not want your fiance to find out when you take her home or him home to meet your parents? What is it? What is it? That that right there is going to detect the area and the issue of shame in your life. I, I can guarantee you that. I can guarantee you that. Your age... We trying to keep hitting your age, little nip and tuck, what is it? Your IQ? You know, I worked for a guy who was a carpenter when I was 21, 20. His name was Pete Pearson. He looked just like Charles Manson. He was a full-blown Louisiana Cajun, and there was nothing this guy could not build. And that was the best job outside of being pastor I've ever had. We built log cabins, we built docks, we built fences and decks that belonged in magazines. That guy could absolutely build anything. People would bring him a picture that a professional guy with this fancy degree in architecture couldn't build it, and he would say, we'll do it. Me and Tommy will build it. And he taught me everything that I know about carpentry work. I almost lost my job working for him because I was staining furniture at his house. I got really violently ill, and I had to go home. We didn't have cell phones back then. He didn't even have a phone in his house. So I wrote this really uh, plain Jane note to him, Pete, Pete very sick, throwing up, had to go home, we'll see you in the morning. And I put it on his front door under the porch where water couldn't hit it. And I thought, that's, that's that. I came the next day to coffee and he said, well, it's been nice having you work for me. And I said, w- w- what do you mean? And he said, well, you I- can't work for me, man, if you're just gonna take off and leave the job like that. And I said, what are you talking about? I, l- I left you a note. And his face instantly just turned bright red. And I said, Pete, I left you a note, man. I left it on your door. I told you I was sick, I had to go home. And he said, I can't read, can't read. You didn't know that, I can't read. I don't know how the guy built the things he built, he did numbers, but he couldn't read, not a lick. So shameful, he didn't want to tell anybody, he didn't want to tell me. I was one of his best friends. What is it that you're hiding? What is it you're trying to conceal and keep from people? That's an area of shame, I can guarantee you that. Your past, your status, your kids' behavior, your struggles, your struggle with pornography, The temptation and the struggle you face with same-sex attraction, that's something you're trying to keep hidden because the shame, your income, your health. See, we don't talk about these things, friends, and there's a reason we don't because there's so much stigma and shame attached to them, at least in our mind and our culture, and even in the church. The church can be a very cruel place to talk about these things, can't it? We don't want that at this church. Man, we're doing all we can to blow that idea out of the water, to make our home groups safe places where you can confess sin and find community and find camaraderie and get help. Where you live, where you work, where you came from, which side of the tracks. You have a history of drug use, you're a registered sex offender. What is it that you're trying to hide? Because you're going to find shame there. Shame and the fear of being found out go hand in hand. So that's the first thing. Shame's everywhere, okay? Here's the second thing. What does shame do? It keeps us from, no, you don't have to pull it up yet. It keeps us from God, and it keeps us from one another. Now, look at this woman. Let's look at the text now. Look at this woman. Do you know how debilitating that this would have been in that day and in that age? She was defiled. She had a hemorrhaging problem. We don't know exactly what it is. It could have been related to her uh, menstrual cycle it was a feminine problem but what compounded this problem friends was that in Jewish um, in, in the Jewish Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus it talks about if you had a, a bleeding problem that you had to be cleansed you were ritually and ceremonially unclean you couldn't be around people you had to go outside the camp sometimes for up to seven days and go through all kinds of cleansing rituals it would have been so embarrassing it would have been so frustrating for her so debilitating so agonizing so think about this this uh, flow of blood was unending so she would have been perpetually unclean perpetually unclean in 12 years time as long as this man Jairus in the beginning of this story he had a 12 year old daughter who was sick and eventually died that he needed Jesus's help this woman had this chronic issue that had been going on that long she had not once been clean you say "Well, what's the big deal well anybody you touched would become unclean so you had cooties man you were like a leper except you were worse than a leper lepers had whole communities where they they could hang out and empathize with one another this woman nobody couldn't touch her husband if she had one probably didn't in fact i've read where this was grounds for divorce back then isn't that terrible If she had kids, she couldn't hug them. She couldn't prepare food. If she sat in a chair and got up and you sat in it, you were defiled. Nobody would want her around ever. Shame in this context would be go away. Get out of here. And you know where she would have been sent to get cleansed? The same place that you would go if you were a Jew to use the bathroom. Outside the camp. Way outside the camp. Where the outsiders go. Where the outcasts are. Or the defiled people, the unclean people, the stained and the dirty people, they go out there, that's where you belong, not here. Don't be around me, don't touch me, don't touch my kids, don't touch any of the stuff we have. Just her showing up in public would instantly create anxiety and anger in people. And for 12 years, they were probably ready ready to just send her to a city of refuge or something and just to get her out of there agonizing. What does shame do? It separates you from God. It separates you from others. She couldn't go to the tabernacle and worship. Man, that would have been huge, guys. She couldn't come to Grace Life Church if we were an Old Testament synagogue. Couldn't come here. Couldn't serve here. Couldn't hold babies back there. Couldn't be on the setup crew. Couldn't be a greeter. Couldn't shake anybody's hand. She could not be on this campus. She couldn't go to the temple. Couldn't talk to a priest and pray with a prophet. Couldn't do any of those things. So try and uh, just put yourself in her sandals. Agonizing, painful. She probably didn't want to live. She was probably at the end of her rope. Most people are just like that. They leave lives of quiet desperation and they go to their grave with a song still in their heart that they never sang. Just like her. She was a nobody. Nobody. And you got to love the way that Jesus encounters her. Because I said this last week, and I'll say it really fast. Here's Jairus. He's the ruler of a synagogue. He's powerful. He has dignity. He's an insider. He's a man. We know his name. And here's this woman. No name. Outsider. Poor. Unclean. Defiled. No dignity. No power. And what does Jesus do? Here's this noble man who's quote-unquote Worthy. He gets Jesus' attention. Jesus is going to his house. This rich, powerful, dignified nobleman, who's a religious leader, he he ruled over the synagogue. At the moment of his uh, emergency and crisis, Jesus essentially says to him, stop. Go wait outside. There's somebody else who has a need here. And it just happens to be a woman who's unclean. Do you know what everybody in that crowd would have been thinking? Jesus, why in the world are you stopping For her. He's worthy. See, Jesus turns all of society's standards and values on its head, doesn't he? This really is the inside out kingdom, as that series was a few months back. Up is down, in is out, to live is to die, (laughs) to rule is to serve, to be blessed is to be cursed. It's the inside out kingdom. And Jesus is already showing us that he doesn't value the standards of this world, he turns them on their head, he welcomes really an outsider. But this is debilitating for her. This is crushing for her. Shame drives us away from God, and it drives us away from each other. And I want to show you this with this slide, because shame goes all the way back to the garden. Do you know in the garden, this is something that children probably snicker at and giggle at. I used to. But one of the first verses that tells us about shame is Genesis 2.25. And this was before sin, okay? And it says, behold, The man and his wife, Adam and Eve, in the garden, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. I used to laugh at that because I didn't know what it meant. Now I know what it means. It's pretty serious stuff. You know what that means? I told you to be an image-bearing creature means that we want to be fully known and fully loved. Don't we? We want people to do both of those. When they have the goods on us, to not walk away. To see us warts and all and still embrace us and say, I'm not going anywhere. I don't care how ugly you are. I don't care how shameful you think you are. But in the garden, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed and they were not afraid. They were in community with God. They were in community with one another. And then you know what one of the first things that happened after sin entered, after they ate the forbidden fruit, after they disobeyed God's ordinances and rebelled against his commands? Look at this. God came seeking out the man. Now, I have a theory about this passage. I think Adam and Eve both ran and hid from God, but I don't think they were together. You can read all the pronouns. I think they were separate. I think they hid from God, and I don't think they wanted to be together. But God came, and he searched out Adam, and he said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was what? I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. Meaning what? I was ashamed. One of the first results of sin was guilt, but also this, shame. Wanting to hide from God, wanting to run away from God, and wanting to run away from other people, because of your nakedness. You're exposed. It's out. It's out. People know now. And you're paranoid. You look at it. Look at Cain. He was banished. He was exiled. And he said, my guilt and my shame are too much for me. And God had to put a mark on him to protect him. All the way through the Bible, you find people. that just, They were driven from society because of shame. Hagar, driven from Abraham and Sarah. Her shame. And God always encountered these people and found them and bestowed grace on them. It's really powerful. It's a really powerful truth. People in the Bible tried in vain to cover up their guilt and their shame. And this woman, I'm sure she did too, but listen, she was desperate. She had a deep need that went beyond uh, just having this sickness, having this disease. She needed God. She needed community. She needed peace. That's what Jesus says to her. Daughter, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. This woman is described in detail. Look at it here. This is agonizing to read this. She's described in detail. Look at verse. Look at verse 25, and there was a woman, seven verbs here, seven participles, just stack up. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She'd suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, was no better, but rather grew worse. He just agonized with her? She spent everything. She exhausted all of her resources to fix this thing and nothing worked. Do you see parallels? Do you see people spending a lot of money to get rid of what only God can get rid of? Listen, I'm not against all forms of psychology and therapy. I'm not. I know there's some good in them. But man, I would talk to somebody to at least, who at least believes the Bible. Because you can, spend, you can go pay somebody to let you sit on a couch and tell your life story. And you may be worse, not better. You can spend a lot of money, but listen guys, only the gospel has the power, only Christ has the power and the willingness to take and absorb your shame, to restore you to God and to reunite you to your community. This woman had spent all she had. Can you imagine? I bet the doctors were tired of seeing her, unless she had more money to give, right? It's funny because Luke wrote a version of this story, and Luke is a doctor. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke is the beloved physician, and he left out some of this story. He left out some of the part about the doctors. He's just like, yeah, she couldn't be healed. She was beyond hope. (laughs) Mark's the one that said all these doctors like bankrupt her. She was done, man. She had no more money, and she was not only not well, she was worse. This thing was progressing, getting worse. Probably at some point, you lose enough blood, life-threatening. She could have died. She was absolutely at the end of her rope. We don't know what caused it, but it would have brought on fertility issues, poverty, weakness, death, marital conflict guilt, shame probably exhausted her. And listen, I read this. This is so sad. The Jewish Talmud, which was a book that they went on uh, when they had an issue like this, prescribed 11 different cures for something like this. Let me read just a few of them to you, okay? Among the remedies, most of them superstitious, was that of carrying the ashes. Now listen, if you had a blood flow issue and you needed to get well, here's what you do, okay? No problem you carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer. If it's winter, you carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag. Just make sure you know if it's winter or summer and go find an ostrich and get that egg and turn it into ashes and carry it around with you. And you'll probably be fine or maybe you won't be. Maybe you'll be worse and broke. Another involved carrying around a barley corn kernel that had to be found in the dung of a white female donkey. Okay, This is not a joke, guys. This is in the Talmud. Not the Bible, but the Talmud, which is what the Jews went by sometimes. Or you could just drink wine with onion in it, and that might help, too. Or it might not help. And you may have really bad breath <laughs> um, and smell like donkey dung, okay? But you wouldn't be any better. You'd be worse. You, these things would just compound. No wonder she was worse. Can you imagine? You smell like donkey dung you're drinking wine with uh, onion in it and you're carrying around ostrich egg ass. Just, oh, my goodness. The best the law could do. What could the law do? It could, it could do this. Here's how the law would treat somebody like that. Get out. Get out, get away, get out of the camp. And you say, why? Well, because you're going to defile all of us. And here's the bigger reason, guys. Here's the bigger reason. Don't miss this. Because God is in the midst of the camp and he's clean and he's holy and you're not you don't belong here. God can't help you. That was the idea. That was what people read into the Old Testament laws. Ceremonial, ritualistic, cleansing laws. God walks through the midst of the camp, and he's holy, and you're defiled, and you're dirty, and you're going to infect us and him, so get outside the camp. That was all that the law could do. You were sent outside because you don't get near the holy one. You might contaminate him, right? unclean, defiled people went outside the camp where the dung was, ashamed, unloved, unwanted, rejected, humiliated. Well, here's the third and final point, okay? And we got to close here. What does Jesus do when he encounters this woman? He does what he does to all of us. This is a picture of what the gospel can do. This is a picture of what the gospel can do. He removes or absorbs the shame. He reunites us And he restores us. He removes the shame. He reunites us to God. And he restores us to community and to fellowship. See, what Jesus does, he identifies with this woman. He stops her. Look at this. He says, perceiving in himself, excuse me, immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? He said, are you nuts? There's thousands of people here touching you. And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. See, Jesus felt power go outside of him. This was very personal. Jesus is not just some abstract, separate, distant cosmic force. Every transaction of power and healing and salvation is deeply personal. And he looked around to see who had done it. Can you imagine this woman? Here's God. Okay? She'd heard the reports, the Bible says. She heard the reports that were circling around about Jesus. He's God. He's God's son. He has power and compassion. She sneaks up to touch his robe. And by the way, the language, the way it's worded here in the grammar, it would have been the tassel on the very bottom of Jesus' robe in the very back. So what does that tell you about this woman? She wants this to be anonymous. She's on her knees, in the dirt, on the ground, probably crawling behind Jesus. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be heard. She wants to get in there and get a healing and just get out. She doesn't want to bother Jesus. But listen guys, Jesus is not about these superficial encounters that so many people have. He he doesn't just want this woman's physical problem to be healed. He wants her shame to be taken away. Because if you read this, you could very easily conclude, why is is Jesus embarrassing her? This is not Jesus embarrassing her or shaming her or humiliating her. This This is Jesus restoring her to himself and to the community. He calls her out. He looks at her. The gaze of Jesus finds itself on this woman, and it says that she's absolutely terrified. She's terrified. She didn't want this. She didn't want this, but look, you always get more than you bargain for when you go to Jesus in desperate faith, don't you? She wanted to get in and get out, and Jesus said, no, I'm going to restore you. And he said, who touched me? Look, he already knew. This wasn't just for information here. Jesus knew. He's wanting her to exercise faith. He's teasing out the faith here. She was trembling. She was afraid. She was shaking. You know what it says? Look at this. In fear and trembling, she fell down before him, and she told him the whole truth. And for once in her life, somebody listened and had compassion. She told him everything. Her life, the 12 years, the defilement, the shame, the embarrassment, the humiliation, the rejection, the loneliness, the isolation. She told him everything. You know what Jesus said? First word that Jesus said. I want to cry talking about this. Don't miss this. He said, woman? It's not what he said, is it? He said, daughter. Only time Jesus ever said this right here. One of the most desperate cases of shame. He called her up out of the shadows, out of the darkness, out of the shame, into his family. (laughs) He said, you're not going outside the camp anymore, darling. No, you're in my family now. You're not an orphan anymore. You're not living like an orphan out there. Because Jesus identifies with us at our deepest point of need and shame, and he goes outside the camp to rescue us. Aren't you glad Aren't you glad Jesus goes outside the camp? Aren't you glad that He's attracted to need? He's not repulsed by it? That broken people rejects shameful people. They ma- they're magnetizing to him. He's drawn to them. He wants to be interrupted by them. He's not put off by them or annoyed by them, ever, then or now, ever. Jesus restores her, and he says, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Not my robe <laughs> not touching me." Your faith and the object of your faith, me, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That word for disease is affliction. It's the same word for the whip they used to beat Jesus. This was a painful existence. And he said, you're done with the pain. You're done with the shame. You're done with being unclean and defiled and rejected. You come to me now. You come to me and there's a place at my table. You will dine with me. You'll be the guest of honor. That's what Jesus does. That's what he did then. That's what he does now. This is the action of faith too. Listen, you can see faith in action. I want to be careful how word this, okay? Because I'm not saying faith is you doing something. But I'm saying when God grants you faith, it's an, you're believing, you're trusting. This is faith in action. Uh, it's like the, the people we saw a few weeks ago that Jeff preached on. They were digging through the roof to get their friend to Jesus who was paralyzed. You can see that faith. It's desperate. It has to, to get to it's like Zacchaeus climbing up in a sycamore tree. This is active, desperate faith. Ed Welch says this. He says, desperation is one of the main ingredients of faith. Faith means you need healing. You can't do it yourself, but you are confident that Jesus is the hands-on healer. Are you willing to contaminate the king? Are you desperate enough? Do you know he invites you to touch him? You know, shame being removed is you being touched by the right person. And not being rejected. She grabbed Jesus and he didn't jerk his robe away. He reached out and he touched her. That's See, faith is reaching out and touching Jesus. And grace is him reaching down and pulling you up. That's what salvation is. That's what restoration is. Jesus did it then and he does it now. He does it now. It says that she was saying to herself if i can only touch his robe this is a beautiful picture and it's a sad picture she's crawling behind him the verb is in the tense that she's repeating it if i can only touch it she was thinking she was desperate she had to find jesus are you there is that where you're at sometimes there's a movie that i like and it was written from a play called the bookworm it's about a millionaire who has a couple of employees that hate his guts and they're flying over Alaska. Blair family, you'll like this. They're flying over Alaska, and they hit a flock of geese, and they go down. Pilot dies instantly. Here's this billionaire and his two employees that despise him, and one of them is having an affair with his wife, as it turns out, okay? He's read all these books on survival. He's very intelligent. They're not, <laughs> and they don't like him. And then at one point, he's sitting, and they're getting chased by Kodiak Bear to boot. So it's a really interesting plot. And at one point, he says this. He says, you know, I read an interesting book once. And the whole, the whole movie, he's berating them with his knowledge. And they're like, oh, great, another book? He said, yeah, I read an interesting book once. Um, and it said, do, do you know why people who get lost in the wild die? And they say, no. How do they die? Why do they die? He said, shame, shame. How did I get here? How did I get lost? How can I let this happen? How can I be this incompetent? And he says, they die from shame because they won't do the one thing that could have saved their life. And they say, and what is that, Charles? And he says, think. She began to think again. And Marlowe Jones said, when you begin to think again, there's hope. She said, there is a man who has power and who has compassion. And I'm going to crawl through the dusty streets. I'll crawl through dung. I'll throw this stupid ostrich egg and wine riddled, <laughs> onion-riddled wine out and the, the, the barley kernel from the white female donkey dung. I'll throw that out and I'm going to forget those things. That's superstition. I'm going to run to Jesus and see what he can do to help me. That's faith. That's desperate faith. The touch of god it's the touch of god and jesus knew power had gone out listen to this john macarthur said this i don't haven't quoted him in a long time he had a really good quote here he said this is what it means to be in christ in living union with him this ends all magic all superstition all healing by touching relics and television sets nonsense the work of the living lord on behalf of sinners is personal he felt the power flow out of him when he healed that woman. He felt the power flow out of him when he saved you. He feels the power flow into your life as he sanctifies you. He'll feel the power that takes you into glory. This is intimate personal involvement with every one of us. Amen, John. He nailed it. Deeply personal relationship with Jesus and his power. And Look, it's a trade. Let's pull up the next slide here. So how does Jesus absorb our shame? Can he just snap his fingers and take it away? No, 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 no. No, friends. This is where it gets really interesting, and I promise we're closing here, okay? There has to be a transfer. There has to be a transfer. See, Jesus is the clean one. He's the holy one. He's the perfect one. We're the unclean. We're the shameful. We're the rejected. We're the outcast. There has to be this transfer. When she touched Jesus, I, th- I think that's an emblem. I think that's symbolic of what happens in salvation. Jesus trades places with us. It's substitution it's substitution. It's not just that Jesus feels pity toward us. Bless your heart here. I'll help you up. No, 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 no. Somebody's got to take this shame. Somebody's got to become the outcast and the outsider and the reject. And somebody's got to bring me in the inner circle. I got to be restored to God. And Jesus does that. That's the transfer. Sin, guilt, and shame, and holiness, forgiveness, and cleansing. And there's another slide up here I want to show you. If he can pull it up. Jesus, when he went to the cross, it says this, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you realize that a cross was the like perfectly devised human instrument for shame? And when Jesus went to it, he knew what would happen. He would be rejected. He would be outcast. He would be an outsider. He would be mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, stripped naked, outside the camp, outside the city gate, up on a hill of Golgotha, and he would trade places with every sinner that would trust him and put their faith in him. And it says he despised the shame. That word despised means not concerned with. He was unconcerned with the shame. Why? The joy set before him. He delighted to trade places with us. Folks, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus still delights to trade places with guilty, shamed sinners. He still does that, I read a TED talk transcript the other day from a brilliant lady um, named Brene, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, Brene Brown. She did one on the power of vulnerability, and it was great. She almost sounds Christian. (laughs) I don't know, I can't, the the verdict's still out, jury's still out on that. But she did a follow-up on shame, and it was really interesting. And she said something like this: She said, in order for shame to live in a petri dish, if you took shame and, and conducted this scientific experiment, brought it in a lab put it in a Petri dish, what has to happen in order for it to thrive? And she said, three things have to happen. You have to add to it silence, secrecy, and judgment. You have to add those three things to it. And then she, she says something like this, well, what overpowers it? What's, what's kryptonite to shame? What destroys it? And she said, here's what destroys it, empathy. She said, empathy destroys it. She said, when you bring shame out into the open and back into a community and somebody says, me too, She said, that destroys shame. Now, look, that's powerful words. Me too, empathy, those are powerful things. But look, friends, I got to wholeheartedly disagree with her. I'm sorry. Those are powerful words, but they're not the most powerful. So, in in other words, if a whole room is filled with people that are full of shame, then that may make us feel not alone, but it doesn't take our shame away. We're just a community of shame. Look at a whole leper colony in the Old Testament. They have empathy, but they're still lepers, and there's still shame and stigma, right? Now, I disagree with her. There's more powerful words than me too. Me instead. That's more powerful. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. Jesus didn't come and say me too. No, Jesus came and he said me instead. Jesus didn't have empathy toward us. Jesus said, how about we trade places? How about I become your substitute? Man, wrap your minds around that, guys. That's the gospel. That's what we come to celebrate this morning. As often as you do this, the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me, we are celebrating Jesus as our sin bearer, our shame bearer, our substitute. Pull up one more slide here, Kurt, if you can. There's a a verse in the Old Testament about a scapegoat. Have you guys ever heard of the scapegoat? The priest on the Day of Atonement, he he makes confession. He slaughters an animal for himself, for the people, sprinkles them with blood, and then he lays hands... On a goat, without blemish, without spot. This goat never dies. This goat stays alive. He confesses the sins of the people and confesses it over all the iniquities of the people of Israel, their transgressions, their sins. All three words in Hebrew for sin are used there. And he shall put them out on the head of that goat and send it away into the wilderness. You know, that's a picture of what Christ does for us. He's our sin bearer. He bears our sin. He bears our shame. And there's a transfer that happens there. Jesus became for us sin, 2 Corinthians 5 says. He made him who knew no sin become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is a substitution that takes place and a transfer. Hallelujah, praise God. The Bible says, those who believe in Christ will not be ashamed. You know that's a quote from Isaiah 28, and it's quoted four times in the Bible. Why? Because it's just hard for us to believe that, isn't it? Jesus says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's not ashamed to be called our God. Jesus is not ashamed of us. Jesus delights to invite us up and out of the silence and the secrecy and the judgment to sit with him at the table. Amen.